Tonight we meet a man named Gideon. He is from the tribe of Manasseh, which he, at his own admission, will say is the smallest tribe, and he comes from the smallest or least impressive family in the smallest tribe. But not only is it the smallest, least impressive family within the least impressive tribe of the time, but he's also an idolatrous house. But not just comes from an idolatrous house, but it appears to be the village temple. The guy, I mean, when you talk about, well, I've come from a bad upbringing, I come from bad stock. If you knew my mom and dad, well, clearly, according to this, he seems to have a bit of money, so he's fairly wealthy uh, in this. But he also seems to be in the house that's basically the temple of false gods in Israel. And that is kind of important to note here. It'll be the shortest depression listed of the 12 judges we'll read in the book of Judges. Uh, six of them are really developed. And then the six were kind of told about the oppression that they kind of, you know, what caused people to finally cry out to the Lord. Of those six, by the way, in round one, we kind of go eight years and then 18 and then 20. And the second is six, 18 and 40. So this is the shortest amount of oppression, but it's also the one that has the most development. We really read kind of how rough those uh, six years were, by the way. And it really does show kind of what life is like in the life of compromise, by the way. There are three of those 12 judges we know are from this tribe of Manasseh. He happens to be, of course, one of them, along with Yer and Yephthah. He's the only one who will fight Midian and Amalek, as we see uh, in our text. He is the only one who has a son, by the way, who will succeed him. And matter of fact, the people will, although he'll do it by murder and intrigue and so forth, but ultimately he will be declared king. I think that's kind of an interesting thing. And really, to be honest, other than Samson, this guy gets the most press in all of the book. And in many of you, even if you're not really familiar with a lot of scripture, you kind of know the story a little bit of Gideon. But man, it's a beautiful, precious story. And I really want to start with this, and then we're going to go right into prayer and start developing our text, because we may cover a few chapters tonight. The, the theme, God started this book, and please don't miss this. God started this book with a guy named Othniel. And it was a story that was recounted that came really out of the book of Joshua. I mean, the the incident had already happened. But what we see now is kind of how it's developed. It really becomes sort of the hinge event that goes, takes us from the book of Joshua to the book of Judges. And it's this story of a guy named, of um, originally Caleb, one of the two guys that actually made it from the first generation, him and Joshua, into the promised land. And this guy says, I've got this daughter, and her name is Achsa. And apparently she's fine. And the reason I say that because he says, well, anyone that wants to take this city can have my daughter. Now, if she was really no great catch, I don't know why anyone would want to fight a bunch of people and risk their life over it. But I think it's interesting. God reiterated the story. And then ultimately, someone will, turns out to, by the way, be her dad's brother. Uh, his name is Othniel. The Holy Spirit comes upon this guy, by the way, and he goes and brings a great victory. And then she asks dad for water. They get this property, and God, um, and she asks her dad, and, and the dad ultimately gives her, by the way, the upper and lower springs of living water. Ah, that's a beautiful picture. But God reiterated the story again in Joshua, I mean, in, in Judges. And I really believe the reason was, is because really it becomes the whole theme of this book. I mean, we can see the cycle of compromise. And of course, if, if you just look at it from the cycle of compromise, it's a very depressing book. Because what you see is it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. On the other side of it, if we started with that love story, what we find is that there is somebody that is worth fighting for. And I want to let you know that walking with Christ is a fight. Not against Christ, but against the world. Against your flesh. 
against the wiles of the enemy. It is a fight. But can I just say, so I'm not going to sugarcoat it or candy coat it or anything. It's a fight. But it is the best fight. It is the best fight you'll ever fight. It is the most worthy fight you'll ever fight. Because the victory is so much greater than any other fight you could ever get into. This fight is over the lives of other people. This fight is over integrity. This fight is over honor. This fight is over our king and how he is represented in the world around us that is determined to make him something that he's not. And I love the fact that when we're talking about this story, that we dig in, as we're, going to, as we're about to dig in now, what we're going to see in every one of these, is it really worth the fight? Because every time we compromise, we're going to find ourselves then in this place where the fight's going to be greater as a result of it. And that becomes part of the problem. So I want to pray with us. But I want to pray that there would be something inside of us that would say, this is worth the fight. And not only is it worth the fight, but it is worth in all ways then. It is worth all of the effort we have. All of the strength that we can offer. Because ultimately what we find is the moment we show up to battle, it is God who fights for us. But he wants us to show up to the battle nonetheless. So pray with me, would you? And let's dig into this beautiful text. Lord, we now come to you and we ask for you to teach us, challenge us, strengthen us. Speak to our souls tonight, Lord. Let us learn what we're supposed to learn from this. Let our hearts be prime soil for the planting of your word. Let our minds be solid and stout in you. And make us sponges tonight. May we have so much fun in your word. Be so quick to receive what you want to tell us. And walk today as you call us to. Lord, ignite us tonight. Set that fire under us to do that which you call us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That the fight we fight is the best fight. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say tonight as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the authority. This is what we read starting in chapter 6, verse 1. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. This will be, by the way, the fifth of seven times we'll read that expression. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel because of the Midianites. The children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds, which are in the mountains. Stop before we even go. Who in the world are the Midianites? It's a blessing to be able to have the scripture before us. We already have six books. Actually, at this point, we've read through those six books. We've taught through those six books. And this so forth, we know this about Midian. And I want to walk us through a little bit of it. I'll give you some verses. Write them down and check them if you like. It starts, by the way, in Genesis 25, verse 2. This is a great season, by the way, to develop a bit on Midian, by the way. In chapter 25, verse 1 of Genesis, what we read is, After the death of Sarah, Abraham got married again. Did you know that? I mean, if you think about the fact that Abraham was basically 100 years old when his boy was born. I mean, imagine parent-teacher conferences they're like oh you brought your great-grandfather no that's just dad and how that ultimately sarah will pass away and he marries another girl and her name is kutura 
And Keturah, by the way, bears this man, bears Abraham, another six-pack of children. I mean, I mean, I don't want to like sound weird, but it's like, wow, wow, Abraham, Father Abraham did have many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. But listen to these names for a moment, because there's a few that I want you not to forget for the moment. She bore him, that's Keturah now, Zimram, Yakshan, that's our first two, Medan, who will be the father of the Medes and Persians, that's Iran today, by the way, Midian, that's our name here, so remember this name, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. And then it says, and Yakshan, by the way, that's the second of those, those kids, begot Sheba. Some of you may be familiar with Sheba. So the two names so far, Midian of these, and Sheba, that would be in essence, Sheba would be a Midian's nephew. And Dedan, and all the sons of Dedan were, by the way, then it gives us their names as well, Letishim and Lemim. And the sons of Midian now were Ephah. And I want you to remember that name for a moment. I'll show you why in a moment. Ephah, Ephah, Chanoch, Adida, Eldaach. These are the sons of Keturah. Of these sons, six, and then from those six, they have some kids. Midian is, by the way, the fourth of those six kids, according to this list. And his brother has a son named Sheba, and he has a son named Iphah. Now, why is that important? We'll see here in a moment. What we do know is they kind of fall off the face of the planet for a little bit after this, until we get to Genesis 37. In Genesis 37, perhaps you're familiar, Joseph was, uh, Joseph was envied. He was the 11th of 12 brothers of Jacob, who gets the name changed to Israel. And ultimately, he has these dreams that he is, in essence, superior over his brothers. Now, any of you who have older brothers know how it's one thing to actually have such dreams, and even if they are prophecies, it's another thing to tell your big brothers. And he does. And that's ten older brothers who clearly see dad favoring this boy Joseph. So they finally meet up with him. Joseph goes to check up on these guys. They're shepherds, but bad ones. And he's going to give a bad report. The boys take him and they throw him in a well. They, they take his, his uh, coat that, God, that, I'm sorry, that his dad had given him. That was obviously one that shows his favor. And in that they kill an animal and they put blood on it. And they're going to say that Joseph was eaten by wild beasts and so forth. And, and, and all of a sudden, they kind of leave him in the well to die for a moment. And then one of the brothers finally says, you guys, the oldest, says, you guys, he's our brother. We can't do that. Let's sell him. So they say, you know, I mean, hey, if he's our brother, let's make a profit off the deal. So what we find is there are a group of Ishmaelite or Midianite traders that are coming by. And those Midianite traders then are the ones who pick up Joseph Sell, they basically buy Joseph from his brothers and then sell Joseph to Potiphar. And you know that whole story, how that goes down. So the Midianites then were kind of known as nomads that were traders. Traders as in they traded things, not like turncoats. But by the time we get to Exodus chapter 2, after Moses, by the way, kills the Egyptian and flees, he flees to the land of Midian. Those Nomads seem to have an area that seems to be theirs at the moment, and that's where Moses winds up. The same people, ironic if you think about it, because they're the people who kind of got Israel into Egypt in the first place. 
And now Moses flees. And while he's there in Exodus 2.15 and then in 2.16, we read that he meets a priest. We read the priest, not a priest, but the priest of Midian. Midian seems to have one, and it's this guy, and he has seven daughters. And one of them is a girl that's name is Little Bird. And Little Bird, she's a cute little bird. And that little bird becomes Moses' wife. Which means then Moses marries a Midianite. An interesting thought. So by Exodus 18.1, what we read is that priest, the priest, is Moses' father-in-law. By the book of Numbers, chapter 8, chapter 10, verse 29, Moses invites his dad, his father-in-law, Hobab, Jethro, to join him in the promised land with his people. What's interesting is somewhere in that time, it appears to me that the priest and his family have separated from the rest of the Midianites. And the reason I say that is, though those people become what we know even to some degree, the Kenites, remember that last time with the girl that was married to a Kenite who had separated himself from the rest who were in league with Israel. She winds up, of course, performing the pagan temple ritual of sticking a peg through the guy's temple uh, of Sisera. Well, well, what we get is that they're certainly friends of Israel, but then the rest of the Midianites, well, they're really not so. And what we read, by the way, is Moab and the rest of the people of Midian, by the way, hire a prophet named Balaam, or you might say Balaam, from chapter 22 of of Numbers. The people who do that were the Moabites. But it appears not to be Moses' father-in-law and his family, but it definitely appears to be the rest of the Midianites. And they hire this false prophet who will not curse them. And ultimately, by chapter 25 of Numbers, the Midianites send their girls in. And because the Midianites send their girls in, they bring, the, they bring Israel into idolatry. As a result of that, by Numbers 31, God says, we're going to declare war on the Midianites. What would that be like for Moses, who is married to a Midianite girl, who, by the way, at this point now, of course, has become Israeli as much as she could, to say, we're going to kill the Midianites, all of them. We're going to go to battle, a war against them. What would that be like? Knowing your dad was, your father-in-law was one. Knowing that all of your in-laws are Midianites. Kind of a crazy thought. And you would say, well, that seems pretty rough and tumble about the whole situation. Is there any redemption to this story of the Midianites? Yes, there is. And I love it when a story has a redeeming end. The book of Isaiah, can you find it? If you uh, hold your finger where it is, if you close your Bible and open it in the middle, chances are you'll get to the book of Psalms. And then if you go to the right, it's the next really big book. Matter of fact, it's easy to remember because there are 66 books in the Bible and there are 66 chapters in Isaiah. And I want you to go to chapter 60. This is all side note, but I want us to get a reference to the Midian. And I think this is such a beautiful story now. And Isaiah chapter 60, have you gotten there? Ooh, I love it. Some of you are like flipping through books and not just doing the easy flip on your... I mean, it's cool in your app as well. Isaiah 60 verse 1 says this. I like to read this, by the way, to my children when they're getting up late. Arise, shine, for your light has come. They always love that, of course. They're like, Dad, you're so holy, I love you. Uh, And the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth 
and deep darkness the people, but the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. Listen, the Gentiles shall come to your light. Now, are the Midianites Gentiles clearly, even though they're sons of Abraham, per se, remind you, only the people that were children of, of, of uh, Jacob or Israel are considered Jewish. The rest were considered Gentiles. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and notice it says, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They are gathered together. They shall come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be nursed at your side. Then you shall see and become radiant, and your heart shall swell with joy, because the abundance of the sea, that speaks of the multitudes of people, shall be turned to you. Listen, the wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. The multitude of camels shall cover your land. The dromedaries, that's two different kinds of camels. There's dromedaries and Bactrians. And the difference between them is whether it's, well, it's kind of like your tea, one hump or two. Uh, the dromedaries, and notice it says, the multitudes of the camels shall cover your land. The dromedaries of what? Midian and Ephah and all those from Shiva. Does that sound familiar? Remember, I had you remember three names. There they are. Shall come. What will they bring? Gold and incense. And they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. Now, wait a minute. Here's a text 720 years before Jesus comes in the flesh that says this. Though up to this point, Midian has been enemies other than this family of the priest. And they say, listen, there's going to be a time and it's going to be a really dark time. But in that dark time, a light's going to come that's going to overcome the darkness. And that light, that light will be God rising up. But don't miss this. When he does come, there are going to be kings, rich men that aren't Jewish, coming from a distant area. A distant area. Now, go back to Genesis for a second, if you would. Go to Genesis 25. We're kind of playing Sherlock here. Now, in Genesis 25... Just read the first few verses and tell me, where did Abraham send those children, which includes Midian? Yep, where? East. Did you notice that? Nice job. Do you see it in the text? Chapter 25. What verse is that? Verse 6. He sends them east. Midian was sent east. The children, these children of Abraham that aren't Jewish, but children of Abraham were sent east. Are you with me on this? Now, Isaiah 60 says this, that they will be coming and they will come back to you. And when they do come back, it will be when the Lord appears. Beautiful light. The Lord appears. Expect light out of this situation. And when they do, they're going to come and they're going to bring gifts. And what are the gifts they're going to bring? Gold and Incense. Anyone have any idea of any Middle Eastern antiquitish incense? Here's a couple. How about frankincense? How about myrrh? Those are incenses. So get this. From the east, men will come, kings will come, and they will bring, when the Lord comes, gold and incense. That could be, if we want, like frankincense and myrrh. When did that happen? At the birth of Jesus. 
Did you see that God already promised that he would redeem? Isn't that beautiful? And here we are in this season where we look at that. And God said, by the way, this whole guy showing up from the east with gifts, you should see it coming. I prophesied it 700 plus years ago in the book of Isaiah. They even told you what they would bring. They even told you that expect camels, by the way, a lot of camels. When it says dromedaries where these camels will cover the land, I cannot get the idea that there's more than three kings. Or the three kings came with a lot of camels. Scripture never says there were three kings. Scripture says there were kings or literally magi or magicians or wise men. And it tells us that they presented three gifts, but it doesn't say how much. They could have come and brought six bushels full of gold. Twelve vats of, of incense of both sorts. We don't, we don't know. I mean, by this point... You know, we've gotten so much tradition. We've even given them names. We've got to make sure one of them is of, of a different race. Matter of fact, it's now it's like one's Asian and one's like kind of a darker skin. Now, who knows whether they are or not? It's kind of irrelevant to me. The cool thing is the king is, the, is Jesus. They could have been green. I'm not really, I don't really care. So back to our point of it. By the time we're looking at it here with Gideon, Midian is kind of, it's kind of easy to remember. It's Gideon versus Midian. Uh, we kind of get the idea here that things aren't looking so good. For Midian. They're, I mean, they're, they're kind of really being nasty. But for us to look at it from our perspective, I want you to realize Israel is again is doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And this is a time of compromise, of you kind of making it up as you go along versus taking God's rules. In other words, you're happy to take God as Savior, you just won't take Him as the Lord. Well, what happens when you do that? Well, take a look at what life looks like here in verse 2 and onward. It says, In the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves dens, the the dens, the caves, the strongholds. Apparently, those are places they could have still visited, which are in the mountains. Interestingly, now, by the way, in this life, it's about hiding and protecting and about survival. It's not about thriving, but now it's about fear. Does that sound like people today? It's not about being free. It's about protecting And we live in this place where our whole life is now about protecting ourselves and protecting our house and protecting our stuff. And then, I mean, police came by our house the other day and they offered us smart water. I didn't know that water had an intellect. But apparently you put this drop on something and when, and he didn't say if, but when someone steals it, they'll be able to track that that water. I'm not sure how that water gives off a signal or what it does or calls out to its water buddies or what. I'm not really sure. Maybe you can tell in the rain. But one thing's for sure, you get the idea that everything's about being protected now. But that's not the end of it, but that was part of it. So it was, verse 3, when Israel had sown, the Midianites would come up, also the Amalekites, and, and the people of the east, and they would come up against them. And they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza. That's the west coast, by the way. And leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. For they would come up with all their livestock and their tents, coming up as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land and destroy it. Now, not only is life about protecting and survival, life now is pointless. It's hard work for nothing. Life's like futile. No matter how much you put into it, it seems like you're getting nothing out of it. I mean, there you are, the harvest seems like it's right in front of you, and then they swoop down and take and destroy the whole thing. He says, this is what happens when you live a life of compromise, is you work harder and harder and you get less and less for it. Is that what your life feels like? Because I want to warn you, people out there that don't know Jesus, 
That's what life is like for them. That's all that life is like for them. And as God sets this scene here, get the idea of a bunch of people who are exhausted with nothing to show for it. Do you feel like that? You feel like, man, you're like, I mean, I see some of you, it's like you you dragged yourself in here tonight. Is it for a purpose? This is what I've learned about serving the Lord. I will never be tired of the work, but I could be tired in the work, but it is never for naught. I remember what it was like to work and work and work and work and feel like nothing came for it. For a paycheck that was already gone before I got it. Thinking, what, and once you, you know this, once you get swallowed up by the love of God, you just go, what difference is this making in the world around me? How is this touching lives? And you wake up and go, God, make me make a difference. I love what I get to do. And no doubt there are days where you're like, whoa, baby, God, you're going to have to be my strength because there's no, none left otherwise. You know what that's like. He says, in a life of compromise, that's all that there is. It's not moments like that. It's not little seasons like that. It's life now. Life as a whole is futile. And then it says in verse 6, So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. This is how bad it had to get before they finally cried out to the Lord. Life now, beggarly impoverished in the land of milk and honey. Can you imagine? This was the place that God promised abundance. And you know it. And we know it because we know that God promised us abundant life. And though God promised us abundant life, if we're living a kind of beggarly life as a Christian, we know something's not right. Now, here's the weird thing. You can live an abundant life even in the face of the most contrary circumstances, people getting crazy, falling and doing horrible things and then making up stories about you, you know, situations that seem contrary to you and everything seems to be a challenge and you can still live abundant life in that because it isn't about the circumstances around you. It's about who you're with. But on the other side of it, if you're living in the state of the world, it will only be as good as the circumstances that surround you. And that's what the world lives in. These people, by this point, Man, it's all about protection, survival, fear, futility, pointlessness, beggarly, impoverished land where God promised abundance. And finally, you're like, I am so sick of this. You're like, you know what? I'm going to cry out to God now. And when they do cry out to God, he sends two witnesses, by the way. And it's important to recognize the reason why God sends such witnesses, first of all, is because he doesn't want you repeating it. You know, we say, all right, hey, look, and I'm having trouble. Could you hold me accountable? Can you step into this situation in my life? But real accountability is something you better submit to or all you're doing is burdening people with your life. If they can't really help, it's like, look, you have my permission to carry me to Jesus because clearly I'm living in battle against him. Man, do you have people like that? I, I believe I do. If I was going to start walking strange, I'd have guys that were like, what do you think you're doing? By the way, you've got to have guys like that, or girls, ladies. I certainly have a wife like that. And what I do love is I have children that aren't looking for the flaw, but boy, they don't have a problem telling me. And to be honest, I really appreciate it. I actually sit down with my children and I ask them, has there ever been anything in my life 
And once I've asked that a few times, then I can just kind of ask by the week, you know, have, there, have you seen anything in my life this week that you think is contrary, that you see is contrary to what I've ever spoken in front of people? Because it is so important for me to live that life everywhere. Now, by God's grace, they've only said no, but I'll, I haven't asked this week, so we'll see. So here's the first of them. Verse 8. The Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the land of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of those who oppress you, all those who oppress you. And I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I also said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you've not obeyed my voice. Now, don't miss this. What God said was, understand, he sends a prophet, and what he says is, let's review our relationship for a moment. I brought you up. I brought you out. I delivered you out. And I drove them out. And then I said to you, don't fear their gods. You were living in the place that called themselves the Invincible Empire. There was one Pharaoh after another who called themselves God in the flesh. There were gods of the choosing there. And I took them all down in front of you. Those that they said were invincible were clearly vincible because I vinced them all. I destroyed them all. And then I got you out. When you were helpless, when you were a slave, you were a sucker to them. Your whole life was on top of you and I got you out of all of that. And then I took you to another place where you were like grasshoppers in the sight of those guys and I took down all of those giants in front of you. Do you remember those giants that I took down in your life? And then I looked at you and I said, listen, don't be afraid of any of these gods. I'm undefeated and remain this way. I'm not going to change. But he says, all I gave you was one commandment. And I said, look at all that I've done for you. Now, just don't be afraid of those gods. And then he says, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now, do you realize that what God just said was fearing their God was an act of disobedience? It wasn't just an act of fear. He says, you realize you are reverencing other gods that I've already taken down. He goes, at this point, you already know they're defeated. You're not serving them because you think that they could overcome me. You're serving them because you're suckering into their society. That's what's going on here. You want to be liked by people that you're supposed to be actually challenging. You want to be popular by people that are enemies of me, God speaking. That's why it's disobedience. And what this prophet is saying is, listen, if we're going to cure this, let's not just cure the symptom. The Midianites and this futility and this emptiness and this yearning inside, these are symptoms. This, this is not the cause. They're just the things that make you so uncomfortable. You'll cry out to me. God's like, I want to cure you, not just treat you. But to cure you, we need to deal with this. You're being disobedient. And that disobedience needs to be dealt with, not just the symptoms. Because that disobedience is going to cause those symptoms again, even if I were to cure you of those symptoms right now. It would be the same way as saying that there's some place that if you went and you, you were injecting yourself with needles and you know that it was giving you hep C, it was giving you AIDS, and somehow you were cured from it, but you have no interest in giving up the needle. God's like, you have to deal with the problem that gave you this in the first place. Otherwise, you're going to get it all over again. And I don't want you to do that. I don't want this to be a cycle. 
a cycle of lies and loathing, a cycle of hatred and bitterness. Is that really what you want? God says, I don't want that. So he sends a prophet. No, he doesn't say in this, I'm not going to help you. What he says is, I want to help you, but I want to help you to the core. I want to cure you and not just make your life a little better. Now we meet our hero. And by the way, seemingly the least qualified for the job at this point. Verse 11. Second witness. Now, the angel of the Lord stopped. Notice the definite article there. Interesting, by the way, God sent a prophet, but now it's the angel. There there is a debate, to be honest, on this angel of whether he is a pre-incarnation of Jesus Christ or not. And my answer to that is, I think it's worth looking into. I don't think it's worth disfellowshipping somebody that thinks one way or the other. But what's clear in this is that that same angel of the Lord we read in verse 11 is going to be called the Lord in verse 14. I think that's interesting. The angel of the Lord came and he sat under a terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah. Ophrah, by the way, means fun. It's a city of Benjamin, roughly about five miles east of Bethel. And it belonged to the house of a guy named Yoash, the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in a wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. And now we have met our hero named Gideon. We read in verse 12, by the way, that the angel of the Lord appeared to him. And I kind of like that, by the way. And the reason is that this term appeared, or raw, means to be seen. Now, look at those two verses for a moment, and I want you to see how funny this is. Now, in, to this day, in, in portions of the Middle East and elsewhere, by the way, where it is an agrarian culture, where we farm and ranch a lot and raise animals, There are certain ways that things get done. Wine and grain, bread and wine, are your staples. Now, hear me on this. Wine is to be kosher. Grape juice, by the way. Wine is not just an alcoholic beverage. Wine is anything that once it's crushed from the grape, it's wine. And what would happen is the people would go and they'd have these vats on the top. And at the top, by the way, it's still very, very protected, and they'd build a booth around it. And they would throw all the grapes in. The people would take off their shoes, and they would hold on to ropes because it gets quite slippery. And those bare feet would be stepping on those grapes. And they would go then, and they would drain down this sort of channel, like an irrigation channel, into a lower area. And that lower area then was covered with something kind of like a nylon. And the idea of that really was kind of like a linen. And the idea of it, do you know, first of all, let me ask you a couple questions. Do you know why the feet would be used and they'd have to take off their shoes? Because shoes crush the seeds in the grapes and that makes the wine bitter. Feet, on the other hand, crush the grapes, but not the, the seeds. So that's brilliant. But the whole thing has to be protected. And do you know why they would put this layer of linen over this channel, ultimately the vat where it would be held? Because they wanted it to be kosher or blessed. And a single bug landing in it would make it unclean. Because bugs are unclean. Does that make sense? You can understand why Jesus says, you strain a gnat but swallow a camel. You're so busy making sure that a bug doesn't land in your wine. But you don't even see the importance of giant things like mercy and justice. Now, follow me on this. Let's go to, so what you really want is you want a windproof, Stable, quiet, little, tucked away area. Does that make sense? 
because you don't want anything getting in your wine. So it's really the stillest place you can find, usually the lowest place. So let's get to the other side of it. Grain. When we're threshing grain, you take the, you know, the wheat grows about roughly a meter high. You grab it with your arm like this. You have the sickle. You know, that's like a big blade that's, that's round. And you go whoop, like this with it. And then you have this thing and you tie it. And that's called a sheave. So you go whoop, like this. And, whoop, and then you cut it and you throw it down. And then what happens is somebody comes and they pick up these sheaves and throw them in the basket. Now what you have is really, just think about it, a bunch of tied three foot, or I should say a meter high pieces of, of wheat. Now most of that is, is the stalk, which is just straw basically. And there's these little grains at the top. So what you do is simple. You take this whole thing and you throw it down in a threshing floor. Now a threshing floor, by the way, is an area where basically it's flat. And what happens is a kid takes something that looks like a, like a sledge, like the kind of thing that you ride down on with snow. And it, on the bottom of it has rocks and sharp things. And kids sit on it to add more weight. And an animal walks around in circles. And what that weight does is it breaks up the grain. But what you have then is you need a very windy place. The opposite. And the reason is because once that animal's done, and what you have now is you have everything's broken up, but you have to separate the straw from the stuff you eat. Well, how do you do it? It's actually quite simple. You take something that looks kind of like a pitchfork, and you just take it and you throw it up in the air. And the reason you throw it up in the air is the part you don't eat is extremely light, like straw. So the wind, that's why you want a windy place, blows all that away. And what's left at the bottom then is the stuff you eat. Kind of brilliant how that works out. But here's the funny part. Notice in our text, this Gideon character is threshing wheat in a wine press. That's the opposite. Can you imagine how futile? Now, he's doing it because he doesn't want to get seen. I remind you, you thresh wheat on the top of a hill where it's the windiest. But that's, of course, the easiest place for the Midianites to see you doing it. So imagine he's threshing this in a place where there's no wind. So what's he doing? He's probably going, oh, <laughs> so, I mean, what do you do to kind of blow away? You know, you grab a fan and like there's somebody going like this while he's kind of going. I mean, imagine how goofy that is. But while this futile thing is happening and you're hiding because you don't want the Midianites to see, that means every sound is amplified. Does that make sense? You ever think you hear a sound at your house at night and you kind of wake up? And at that point, it's like it doesn't matter if the sound happens down the block. It sounds like it's in your house, right? You're like, whoa. And like you're turning up everything inside of you, time to hear. Right? You're kind of listening in your house for anything. If a dish settles on your strainer, you're like, oh, time to get up, right? I mean, I mean, it's like, imagine you think the Midianites are going to seize upon you at any moment, right? Now get the picture of this. Gideon is freaked out. And he's there and he's threshing this. And what we read is the angel came and sat down, but, he could, but according to the text, wasn't seen. So here he was. Let's say it was Jesus or whether, but whatever the case is, this supernatural angel. Angel, by the way, I remind you, is not a species. It's a job. Angel means messenger. You probably know that. And, you know, it's important to recognize. Now, cherub or seraph, that's a species, if you will. And the reason I say that is when John the Baptist sent messengers to Jesus to ask him, are you the guy we really should be looking for? The term in the Greek is angelos. He sent angels. But they weren't cherub or seraph. They were just people. They were just sending for a message. And can I, let me ask you, can a donkey be an angel? Apparently there was. I mean, there's been, you know, there's been one where with Balaam, Balaam, if you remember, where an angel turns and starts to speak to him, clearly has a message. He's a messenger. Kind of key. And you know what he said at the end? And tomorrow, I'm making waffles. Anyways. Now, follow me on this. So this angel kind of shows up. 
they're just kind of there but not seen while he's while Gideon's freaked out, frightened, and blowing this kind of, you know, thing. And all of a sudden it says and he appeared. He's like, hey. I love this. It's just like, I mean, there he is. I mean, there he was just with him, but he did, but Gideon didn't know. And now he just sort of appears. Could you imagine the little scream of a little girl that came out of Gideon at that moment? And he was just like, what's up? I mean, and so matter of fact, and that's kind of what we have. And what we start to see is how Gideon starts to deal with this angel. Now, I remind you, this is a supernatural being one way or another who could clearly not be seen and then be seen. And then notice what it says. It says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him, verse 12. And this is his statement. Out of nowhere, he says, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. Now, mighty, by the way, gibur means strong or brave man. And the word valor, chayil, used 56 times about an army, means soldier or mighty or, or efficient. The idea of it is, if you'd say like, the Lord is with you, you super brave soldier. Now, which would have been a very funny thing to say. And I wonder at that moment if the angel even went out of his way to scare the guy and then just to have a little bit of fun and say, yeah, now the Lord's with you, old, strong, mighty, courageous, super soldier. Gideon responds, by the way, with questions. Why, where, and how? Gideon says to him, oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all of this happened to us? And where are all of his miracles, which our father's told us about saying that the Lord did bring us up out of Egypt but now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites then the Lord notice turned to him and said go in this might of yours and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites have I not sent you does that sound like a very strange conversation the angel the Lord says the Lord is with you courageous super soldier and he says, well, if the Lord's with, then why all is this happening? Where are all those miracles I heard about? Oh, no, he's forsaken us. And he says, oh, go in that might of yours now, and you're going to win. Huh? How does that work? Well, do this. Remove Gideon's statement altogether and just read the two that the angel says. The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. Go in this might of yours, and you will save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Haven't I sent you? You see, what the angel did in essence, notice he doesn't answer the why. He's like, well, why is this happening then? Have you ever had that? God, with all of these things, where are all those promises? Where's that great and mighty God of the Bible? What's all this? And there are times, by the way, where God is not obliged to answer. Because what's truth be told is even if there are answers, there'll be other questions. And he's like, what I need is faith from you. I need you to trust me. And me answering your questions isn't going, to change, isn't going to make you more faithful. To be honest, it won't strengthen your faith, even though at the moment you're convinced it will. Because if it will, God would answer. He's like, the Lord is with you. Now go on that might. What might? The Lord is with you. There's the might. There's your power. Your power is that the Lord is with you. And I realize in this, he starts out as a cynic. He'll move from a cynic to a skeptic to a scaredy cat to a soldier. And I realize in this, fear is birthed from an overoccupation of myself. In an underestimation of God's presence and the power of God's presence with me. I'm so captivated, so captivated by myself in a preoccupation with me. And I'm so unpreoccupied, unoccupied whatsoever 
with really seeing the power of God in my life and seeing Him in it. So, here's the deal. God says, now go. In that might, in this power, I'm with you. We're going to win. Gideon, by the way, shows us where his focus is in verse 15. He says, so, oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Do you get that? This is the same thing. And you can see God saying, you know, why is it every time I recruit some guy, all they want to talk about is themselves? Oh, how can I do it? Moses, I'm calling you. How can I do it? Have you seen my mouth? Jeremiah, I'm calling you. Oh, yeah, I'm just a youth. Isaiah, I'm looking for someone. Yeah, but I've got a filthy mouth and a bad past. By the way, don't try that one with God. It seems like an angel takes a coal and puts it on your lips. Sounds like a bad choice. Every excuse you could try to use to God, somebody else has already tried it and didn't work for them. I don't think you can give the case better than they did. I think he put him in Scripture so we could see that our excuses really get fleshed out to the bottom line, which is we just don't have enough faith to go. Gideon's like, now how in the world am I going to do this? In 1 Corinthians 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 27, it says, listen to this, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. The weak things of the world, by the way, to put to shame those things that are mighty. The base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are so that no flesh would glory in his presence. So you really think you're unqualified? Let me ask you, do you feel foolish or weak or base? You know what that means? You're at the bottom of the social ladder or despised people hate you or are not like you don't see any potential. Sounds like you qualify quite well. And God's answer is always the same. I'm with you. Stop thinking you're the, the warrior. I'm the warrior. I'm just looking for a jersey for an outfit to put on, and I was hoping it to be you. Genesis 26, he said the same to Isaac. Genesis 31, he said it to Jacob. Interesting, Deuteronomy 31, he said it to Joshua. He'll say it to Solomon. But listen to this, back in Isaiah 45.1. But now... Says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, fear not, O Israel, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by your name, your mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you won't be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. You tell you why. Because I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Shiva in your place. Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored, and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Fear not, because I am with you. Hey, you could always be afraid until you're aware of the fact that God's there. You know what's interesting is? Would that have done it for you? Would that have been enough? Well, not for Gideon. Verse 17, it says, Then he said, Well, if I found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it's you who talk with me. Don't depart from here. I pray, and I'm going to come and bring you my, my offering and set it before you. And he said, okay, I'll wait until you come back. So Gideon went and prepared a young goat, an unleavened bread, and an ephah flour, and the meat he put in a basket, and he put the broth in a pot. And he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. Now, notice what he brought. Goat and bread, and then he also brought broth. What is broth? Well, probably no. 
Marach, juice, right? But what is juice? Blood. Interesting, he'll accept the meat and the bread, but he won't take the blood. The angel said to him, the angel of God, take the meat of the unleavened bread and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he poured out the broth and he did so. The angel of the Lord put the end of his staff that was in his hand, touched the meat with the unleavened bread, and fire rose from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread, and the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. And you know Gideon's response to that is he starts to freak out. How fun is that? He says, now the angel perceived, I'm sorry, that Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, alas, oh Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Probably a lot like that, to be honest, except in in Exodus 33, by the way, verse 20, it says, God says, no one can see my face and live. Now, we, you know, we sing songs like that, right? We sing, you know, like, you know, uh, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, I want to see you, right? And God's like, well, you realize that's going to kill you, right? And then I realize, actually, yeah, that's exactly the point. I want the old man to die. I want that guy to die. I want to see your face, and I want that person I was to die and to stay dead, And the Lord says to him, peace be with you. Do not fear. You're not going to die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and he called it, the Lord is peace. Or Shalom. And it's there to this day, by the way, in offer of the Abysrites. Now look at I want to go one more thing quickly on this before we take it. And obviously, I, there's so much to cover. But I'd like you to realize something here. That God wants to call you. And he wants to call you to be a world changer. And maybe you're working in a situation where it seems like it's nonsense. Like you're there and you're checking in and checking out. And you don't even realize that the Lord could be standing right beside you and you don't see him. Just like this was. But there's going to be a moment where the Lord will break that silence and appear in such a way. And at that moment, will you be cynical? Will you be skeptical? A cynic, by the way, says, I don't care about the evidence. I've made up my mind. A skeptic says it's going to take good evidence to change my mind. And say, hey, look, it, I've called you. I've got a great call on your life. And you're like, but me. And are you going to focus on you when he does? The question is, what happens if the Lord were to do that? And this is the point of this final portion for a moment. Verse 25 says, it came to pass that same night. That the Lord said to him, now take your father's bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has. Cut down the wooden image that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord on uh, your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement. And take that second bull and offer it as a burnt offering, a burnt sacrifice, with the wood of the image in which you cut down. So God says, you've got three things. Your house has an altar. Your house has a wooden image and your house has a bull ready for sacrifice to this false god. So this is what I want you to do. Destroy their altar and build a new one. Cut down their woman image and use it as firewood. And then kill that bull and take it and make it a burnt offering. I remind you, a burnt offering, all of it is gone. So, Gideon took men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared, and notice, by the way, we'll see that as a common theme with him his father's household, and the men of the city. Too much as it was that day. Uh, sorry, too much to do it by day. He did it by night. So he took a bunch of guys. He said, let's not do this where anyone can see. And at night, cut down. He was obedient. 
And when the men of the city arose in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down, the wooden image that was beside it cut down. The second bull that was offered on the altar had been built, that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And they, when they inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, or Yosh, has done this thing. Then the men of the city said to, came to, said to Yosh, bring out your son that he may die because he has torn down the altar of Baal and because he has cut down the woman, the image that was beside it. But Yosh said to all who stood upon or against him, would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death this morning or by morning. If he's a god, we'll let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down. Therefore, on that day, they called Gideon Yerubbaal, as Yerub means to plead, saying, let Baal plead against him because he's torn down his altar. You realize what dad did. Dad saved his son's life. But what he said is, if this guy's a real god, why are you freaked out? Let him deal with it. He's a real god. He'll take care of it. It says, then all the Midian and the Amalekites and the people of East gathered together and they crossed over and encamped at the Valley of Jezreel. And it says in verse 34, but the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. And that's why I want to stop for the moment. But please hear me in this. Here was the deal. Gideon's life is futile. He's working hard and he's getting nothing for it. And now here he is. And it's like he's got the hardest job. You know, it's like basically you're there drying dishes in the bottom of a swimming pool. Like there's, I just feel like no matter what I do, this is just never gets done. It's just so much. And it's, man, it's like I get near closing down the pile and a new pile shows up. You know how that life is. And you don't even realize, even in the most futile of moments, that there is the angel of the Lord standing there and you don't even see him. And finally, he's like, look at, hey, soldier, have you forgotten you're a soldier? Have you forgotten that the Lord's called you to fight the good fight? You, not just us, but you. To fight that good fight, to take that stand, to not back down, to not be caught into the enemy's lies, and not to this place where we just feel like we're going to sit back and let everybody else do it. And the moment the Lord calls him, he's like, hey, 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 wait a minute. How could the Lord possibly be? Don't you realize how crazy my life has been? Don't you realize the challenges I've had? Don't you see the bondage that's around me? Don't you see the pressure that I'm under? Don't you see the grief that I'm surrounded with? Don't you see the horrible things that I see in my life? How could God be possibly here when all this is happening? And the angel, by God's grace, does not answer all those questions. Instead, he goes, now, you'll, one day you're going to look back at all of this and realize how dumb those questions are. Now is not the time to answer them because you're in no place to hear the answer anyways. So just go. Just go and do what I told you. I realize that as a parent, sometimes they're like full of questions. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I realize what those questions are. Just go. And what we realize is those questions that look like a cynic or a skeptic are just covering up the fact that he's just afraid. Just like many of us. He's just afraid. But God says, look it. If I'm going to use you to change the world, and this is the part I don't want you to miss in this. He goes, you know what's going to have to happen first? I'm going to go home with you. And you've got some things in your house that we need to take care of. Before we're going to change the world around you, we've got to change the world inside you. Here's the problem with the world inside you. You've got an altar built to someone or something that should never have been built. And that thing needs to go down so that the right altar, God speaking, where I'm on the throne, God speaking, is proper. And you've not only got that, 
But you've got this giant post. You know what that giant post was? It was a license for sexual sin, is what it was. It was an pole. And all that was was something, and it was shaped, to be honest, like a giant thing that separates men from women. I don't know how to say that any nicer. I can't even imagine having that in my yard. So that, And what's even amazing, more amazing, is that the entire neighborhood, the village, shows up to worship it. But it happens today. It's just on the Internet. Or it's just a cheapening of our standards. Because the world says this is acceptable and that's acceptable. But we know God says otherwise. And God's like, look at that needs to go down. I want purity. And this is what it says in Thessalonians. This is the will of God for you. Your sanctification. That you would possess your vessel in sanctity and honor. God wants you pure. He doesn't want us going, well, it's still it's better than the world. God's like, I want you pure. And the reason is because I want to change the world and I don't want you to fall in this once you start being a world changer. So I want to take care of these things. I want to take care of these altars. I want you to tear down these altars and then I want you to take, to take that thing and I want you to burn it. And those things that you've dedicated to some other God, those priorities and those values and those dedications you have where you know it's fighting God and it stands against them. God says, I want you to take that thing and lay it on the altar today and let it burn all of it. And then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. And here's my prayer for us as we go to prayer now. Can we tonight Say, even if I don't totally get the metaphors or even if I kind of get them, but I'm not really sure what that, how that looks in my life, they'll let the Lord reveal it. And if there isn't anything, praise God. And if there is, then let him change it. But could you imagine if we walked out here saying, God, no other altars but yours. No pillars but firewood. No other sacrifices. But now my body offered as a living sacrifice unto you, Lord, holy and pleasing is my reasonable act of service or worship to you. And watch what God does. Could you imagine what he would do? I mean, he raised up one Gideon to do this. And what we're going to find is when this guy takes on the army, his army is 0.002% of the enemy's army. Do you realize what that means? That means for every 1,000 guys in their army, there were two of us. That's 500 per person. Could you imagine? Do the math as you look around. 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, 6,000. You start looking around, you're realizing, could you imagine that? what would happen if that's where we were at? And I want to pray tonight that we would let God do all the house cleaning he needs and then pour his spirit upon us in a way so that he would change the world around us. Could you imagine? And we'll know we could because he changed our world first. Pray with me, would you? Lord, on this night with believers, as we sit in this room, and I know when we're looking at whatever is before us today and tomorrow, Lord, I just want to thank you for the privilege of being able to say yes to you another day. I want to say thank you, Lord, for this beautiful text. And Lord, as we begin this story of Gideon, we recognize, Lord, that all that skepticism and challenge is really just fear covered up with makeup. And God, I don't want to be in this place, Lord, where 
basically I have a disobedient heart. But now I've thrown a wig on it and made it sound like I'm just being smart. So Lord, please tonight, do some serious house cleaning. If there are any altars in our life, things built, Lord, to honor and elevate to a disproportionate level, something, anything, or anyone. Lord, we'd rather to say, tear down that altar as should be, that the proper altar and its proper right and its proper placement could be built for you. Not just something we make up, but the way you've ordained it. And in that same way, Lord, wherever we've been, Lord, and Lord, I recognize how humiliating and challenging, Lord, it is for people to hold each other accountable. And Lord, to seek to, to walk the straight and narrow when it comes to sexual purity, Lord, we've dealt with so much of that here already. But Lord, I pray that you would make us people, Lord, who crave purity, not just not being as dirty, but to be pure, Lord. And Lord, we don't want it just to be something chopped down into little ones, but rather, Lord, burnt completely so all that's left there are ashes that will blow away. And we recognize all peoples of all types still come to worship that same little thing, that same, that same horrible idol, And God, I pray as well that whatever we've set aside, Lord, from You to offer to something else, pray now, Lord, it would be Yours completely. Jesus, we recognize You gave up everything to purchase us when You died on that cross. You withheld nothing. And when You died on that cross for all of our sins, we were the only reason. We were what was on Your mind. And just like Scripture promised on the third day, You rose again offering us a brand new life, a brand new life where there are no other altars, where there are no no pillars to worship, where there are no sacrifices to be given to anything else. But we lay ourselves before you as living sacrifices, as Romans 12.1 says, and say, use us now, Lord, to your glory. Make us world changers, we pray. On this night, in Jesus' name, Amen. Beloved, on this quiet, tired night, let the Lord speak to you. And I just pray that if there's anything I could be praying for personally, you know, in regards to this, I just want to be on my knees for you guys. I just want to thank you. We also want to say quickly that tomorrow, you're aware, at 1 p.m., we're going to be in the visa office. Appreciate your prayers. Uh, we want to walk. We should be able to walk out of there with the promise of a visa, so we will know right then. We'll be texting, I'll be texting the Knights right away. That's Daniel and Daniel and, and Hugo and Bruno and Birchie, though, of course, he's in the Canaries or wherever he is. Um, so we just want to let you know. So if you want to get in contact with any one of them or us, we'll be celebrating, of course. As we, at least we plan to. You know how that is. We also just want to let you know, if you're going to be around on the 23rd of December, that's the day before Christmas Eve. So we call it Christmas Adam because Adam came before Eve. Um, we are going to be doing something in Covent Garden, and we would love to have you be a part of it with us. We have different areas, and you can see them. They're all by the box back there where we give. And uh, go ahead and take a look at them and see if there's any part you want to be a part of. I mean, it's everything from outreach to baking. So, uh, But please, tonight, go be an encouragement to each other. God bless you.